to Global Perspectives. And for all the listeners that are tired of the talk of the death of the 6040, we've got a treat today in that we're forgetting about the world of long-only, benchmark-constrained stocks and bonds. And instead, we're getting into alternative strategies that are very much alive. That will be thanks to David Elms and Steve Kane. They are lead portfolio managers on Janice Henderson's Diversified Alternatives team. So David, Steve, thanks for being in the studio today. Thank you. Thanks for having us here. It's my pleasure. I I think it's a much needed discussion given the stress the traditional markets have been through. So Steve, on that note, let's just kick off with the macro situation across rates, CPI, the bear market, geopolitics, whatever you want to talk about. What are the biggest themes that you're focused on right now? Well, this has been fascinating for those of us who uh, spend our our research time thinking about big macro themes and, and big changes in both politics and economics. So Obviously, the major theme from an economic perspective has been the uh, sell-off in bonds and the consequent uh, rise in interest rates across the globe. The question is, are we at the end of that cycle as inflation peaks and we begin to see disinflation again, or is inflation going to be more persistent? So that's a key question for us in determining where we are in the expansion of risk premium across the various strategies that we look at. That's a big driver of underlying returns in different places, in different universes, and different asset classes. The market is pricing recessions across a range of global economies, particularly in Europe with the energy crisis coming through this winter. But also here in the US, many forward-looking indicators suggest recession that would suggest that the bond market sell-off is almost complete. And yet we see very persistent inflation, very sticky inflation. And if that continues, we may yet have further to go in this bearish environment. Thanks, Steve. I think we could talk macro all day, but I think it's interesting to just talk about in your guys' philosophy, just the mechanics of a successful strategy and how you put those macro insights to work. So David, I mean, first off, can we talk about portfolio protection? So what exactly does portfolio protection mean to you compared to what some might call tail risk hedging is a more popular term? Portfolio protection is a mechanism to smooth returns in difficult environments. So March 2020 was a really good example of that. And the aim is to produce consistent, long-term, uncorrelated returns. So uncorrelated to traditional assets like equities and fixed income. And this is reasonably easy to do in normal situations. Things like convertible arbitrage or, or merger arbitrage produce strong returns in normal environments. And I say normal is up, flat, or even down a little bit. But if something like March 2020 comes along and you see risk spikes, liquidation, investors taking money out of funds and managers forced to sell, then the diversification that gets you by in normal terms doesn't work. And you see just about every strategy performing poorly. So what do you do when diversification doesn't work? When diversification doesn't work, you look for assets with, if you like, reverse polarity. So assets that are designed to make money when markets are under stress. So The role of portfolio protection is to deal with these very unusual situations through time, maybe the once every five years or the once every 10 years situation, and produce strong returns in that environment, but in normal environments to be reasonably close to zero. So think of it a little bit like an insurance strategy. But I guess it's worth saying that you shouldn't think of the the returns in a stressed environment as being sufficient to hedge other assets that somebody might have in a broader portfolio. 
So we, we need to be clear about the, the scope. So you're talking about diversification within context of a single strategy, not necessarily the more common concept of tail risk hedging across, in this case, a client's broader asset allocation. Yeah, that, that's right. There's a very big difference between a, a component of somebody's broad asset allocation that provides protection or tail risk and a fund or strategy that incorporates tail risk and produces more stable returns as a consequence. So Steve, maybe then if, if David's talking about trying to move inverse to markets during an all-out crisis like the COVID-type sell-off, just stretching out the time horizon to think longer term, like what is a successful correlation measure? It sounds like probably not necessarily negative in the long run, but what would you view as success as far as longer term correlations in a multi-strategy approach? The multi-strategy approach is designed to produce consistent returns across market environments. So we don't think of this as a strategy designed to perform in down markets more than they, it performs in up markets. So it's really about creating the, the asset allocation within a multi-strat to the different strategies in a, a broad context of things that are able to thrive in all market environments. Now, clearly, the one of the key components of that, as David's mentioned, is understanding the complex portfolio of different strategies, and they all start to change their covariance matrix and address that shock to the portfolio. And that's true across multi-strategy managers across the universe. But the measure of success is actually consistent returns in all environments to be very consistent up and down markets such that if you just looked at the return stream, you wouldn't have an idea if that was a bear or bull market in the main asset classes. And so on the note of low correlations, trend following might be the most popular substrategy because it usually carries the lowest correlations, but it can also be one of the most volatile substrategies. So David, what do you guys think about trend following right now? And, and how would you balance those benefits and risks in the context of a broader multi-strategy approach? We've seen the re-emergence of inflation and we've seen traditional assets typically go down, equities fixed income, and some inflation-sensitive assets like commodities go up. So the existence of these trends is logically something that you'd expect to support a trend-following strategy, and that is indeed the case. So it's a great environment, and we think that inflation in general is helpful for trend-following environments. So you think inflation is, is defined as being prices moving in the same direction through time, and that's indeed the, the, the market feature that trend-following strategies are designed to seize upon to produce their returns. So it's a great environment for trend-following right now, so the aim of protection is to be able to capture different forms of stress in markets. And the form of stress that we see this market is very different from March 2020. And in March 2020, markets were moving 10% a day up or down, more volatility than we've seen over the whole 2022 came in the in the month of March and it just, just came at a much, much faster rate. And so the things that work in terms of protecting the portfolio this year don't necessarily work when you roll them back to an environment like March 2020. So then if we're talking about trend following and the role of low correlations and then the portfolio protection concept, these mechanics kind of coming together in a multi-strategy approach, then just Peeling back a little bit, what does success and alternatives look like overall? What do you think is the biggest need for alts in a typical portfolio right now? So one of the consequences of bringing inflation back into the economic system has been the need to reevaluate traditional portfolio asset allocation, the 
portfolio that we've all got used to running for 30 years was conditioned on disinflationary environment, low inflation environment, and the need, therefore, to have a larger allocation to risk assets than would be the case in an environment where fixed income money market rates provided a base return on which to build that portfolio. Now that we see available interest rates approaching 5% in the US, a complete reevaluation of of your asset allocation would suggest that a much lower requirement for risky assets, in other words, potentially a a lower allocation towards long-only equities, and a, a base return in funds which more closely match the fixed income but have lower correlations to its movements up and down. So again, the key feature is very low correlation to beta elsewhere. So that includes fixed income beta and includes equity beta. So success in alternatives to me involves the role that, that alternatives perform in an investor's portfolio. So typically an investor has used equities to produce the bulk of the return and fixed income, fortunately, as Steve said, has also produced strong returns over the last 30 years. But investors also relied not just on those assets as return contributing, but also as being diversifying within a portfolio. And this is the point of correlations. So that if you have stress, whether the stress was 1987 or 1997, when you saw the the Asian crisis, I say 1987 like everyone remembers it, and that may just reflect my experience. But of course, October 87 was a very important early experience for both Steve and for me in terms of our careers, and it shapes your experience to risk. But in 87, equities went down, bonds went up, and this is the signature negative correlation that meant that not only did equities and bonds both produce returns for investors, but they they acted to offset each other, and it meant that a portfolio that blended both was much more stable than either of the components. So that's been the setup for most of the last 30 years. But what we've seen in recent times is the re-emergence of inflation, volatility and discount rates, meaning that the present value of fixed income assets, so present value of the coupons and the future principal, and the present value of equity assets, the, the, the dividends paid by equities through time, have been more influenced by the discount rate and less influenced by what's happening with the, the, the cash flows being discounted. So that means high correlation between equities and bonds. It means this very attractive diversification effect in a traditional portfolio has gone. So what do you do when your traditional assets are both weak and also becoming correlated? This is when you need alternatives in your portfolio. And I think there's two things alternatives should do. They should produce a, a positive expected return. That's ultimately the game, but ideally produce the returns with low correlations to other assets. And this is far more important today, given the change in the environment of the risk for traditional assets. Okay. So that's great. And in terms of, of driving that differentiated set of returns compared to traditional asset classes, we talked about portfolio protection. We talked about trend following, but Steve, what other risk premia are most important? What other pieces of the puzzle are there that we haven't talked about yet? So the core driver of any alternative is to find exposure to a risk premium that isn't correlated with traditional assets. So what might that look like? Well, for example, liquidity risk premium, where people transact in the market, they create the need for liquidity. And when that's not naturally available, 
that offers a price discount in, in most cases. And by exposing oneself or providing the liquidity to the market, you can earn the return available for providing that liquidity. That can be long-term liquidity. We talk about, a lot of people talk about private equity, receiving a risk premium for the illiquidity of the assets that they are able to purchase with locked up money. At the other end of the spectrum, looking at providing very short-term liquidity, for example, around secondary blocks that come to market or potentially around block trades where other participants in the equity market are trying to change their exposures in a very short period of time by selling one stock and buying another. In the fixed income markets, governments trade large blocks of duration in a very short period of time. And you usually find a price discount that gets built in around those large transactions. And by exposing oneself to that market, you can earn that discount as the market renormalizes after the sale is over. So looking persistently across lots of different markets in lots of different situations where the understandable risk premium is available, but really don't correlate with whether markets are going up or down in fixed income or equities. Would another example of that be some of the epic short squeezes we've seen the last year or two? Does that create opportunities for alternative managers? It creates both opportunities and threats for alternative managers. And certainly, if you take examples like GameStop and the short squeeze that is probably the most publicized of the recent short squeezes, that managed to take some managers out of the game because they had large positions to start with and didn't manage the risk very well. And I think what you normally see, and this is part of the sort of contrarian bias is that when people get punished for doing a particular sort of trading strategy, and, and let's take short selling and take the meme stocks that bubbled up in 2021, then if after that strategy has damaged investors, you start to take on those risks, the rewards can be rich. So I, I think there were good opportunities in the middle of 2021 to start to look at some of the more overvalued names in the market and take very carefully controlled, very small risk positions and capitalize on the gap between the unreasonable expectations of some of the retail investors who thought that their their stocks and, and cryptocurrencies for that matter would grow to the moon, when in, in reality, the probability of them doing it was very, very low. So that created an opportunity. And I think at the same time, and the same sort of drivers, SPACs were also an interesting opportunity, both on the short side, when SPACs were pricing that every business venture, and these, a lot of these were very speculative ventures. So you're talking space tourism and half a dozen different electric car companies. Not all of them were going to succeed, but they were priced for perfection. So there were opportunities on the short side but also, now that SPACs are deeply unpopular, there are opportunities on the long side. But these are more buying SPACs with a lot of cash inside the shell as a fixed income substitute and less about buying them for the very speculative enterprises that were being promised in 2021. So SPACs, meme stocks, crypto, all poster children for the roller coaster of the last few years. What's happening right now that's making you guys feel particularly skeptical or maybe contrarian could be a better term? We spend a lot of time looking at volatility markets, volatility markets across asset classes. Certainly equity volatility, we've seen volatility permanently high, high being a very imprecise statement. So it's remain elevated above normal levels. The normal market structure allow is for 
investors to be buying crash protection against their assets. And that means that the price of puts is more elevated than the price of calls. So we call that the skew. And that skew has become slowly flatter and flatter as the market trends down. You could argue that the market is discounting the potential for a big crash from current levels. Um, That, in our view, potentially is an interesting juxtaposition where actually skew might be more attractive today. The probability of a crash, in our view, is remains elevated given the liquidity and plumbing in the system is becoming extremely stressed with the continued rise in interest rates. And so we, we, we spend time looking to position in, in a systematic way across that equity volatility complex. The other place that's particularly interesting, given the activity that's gone on in politics in the UK, is just how elevated fixed income volatility has got in that particular market. It's the oldest fixed income market, persistent fixed income market in the world. We've seen extraordinary behavior in the long-dated assets in that market with long-dated volatility in the 30-year gilt, for example, at something like six standard deviations above its normal. Now, that clearly can't persist. The question is, how does one take a mean reversion view in that market without exposing investors to abnormally large risks. But it's it's a market that we're looking to take advantage of at its current extreme. It's been a very interesting situation in the UK, as Steve says, and we've had a, a catalyst of political instability and potential policy errors that started to drive interest rates up. But I think what we've seen there has been a feedback loop where UK pension funds who traditionally hedge long-dated liabilities, and their liabilities are the pension payments they promise to retirees in the future by buying long-dated swaps, so interest rate swaps. And as interest rates started to go up, these hedges cost them money. And this has been the opposite of what we've seen over the last 30 years when the hedges made money as bond markets went up. So As pension funds lost money, they sold liquid assets and they started with the cash in their portfolios and they gave that to the people who provided the swaps as margin calls. And when that ran out, they sold the next most liquid asset and that was their holdings of gilts, which are UK government bonds. And this caused the gilts to fall more, which caused more margin calls, which caused them to sell more. And you had this sort of cascading liquidity spiral and this drive the higher volatilities that Steve spoke about. And these are the sorts of opportunities where the market is unstable for some reason and all it needs is a catalyst. And the catalyst was a strange political situation for it to explode. And this is part of the prospecting that we do in the, the macro world. Okay, we've, we've talked about liquidity a few times already. So post the global financial crisis, post the COVID sell-off, there are so many situations in recent history where liquidity was just sucked out of the system. And so within alternatives, illiquidity has this reputation that's a little mixed. It's been called lagged beta at best sometimes or volatility laundering at worst. So in your guys' view, what is the role of, of illiquidity in alternatives? When is it a benefit or, or when is it a cost? Liquidity has many forms. So some of the ways we've discussed it, we're talking about market liquidity. If you like, I think one of the ways people express that is in the plumbing in the system. And when illiquidity comes about because the plumbing stops functioning, money is not flowing to the right parts where it's hard to transact in markets. And we see that sort of situation as important to be aware of, potentially to hedge through tail heading strategies in general. That's when 
functioning markets break and you get large gapping market price moves. It is also a source of great opportunity because that illiquidity drives wider risk premiums and gives great investment opportunities going forward. More generally, what we're seeing this year is a different type of liquidity being sucked out of the system, which is a deliberate attempt for the central banks to influence GDP or growth in general in the economy by removing excess demand from the economy. And that obviously drives more long-only strategies more implicitly. If I think about this from an investor's perspective as trying to compose a portfolio of assets to produce stable long-term returns, I think it's very tempting if you're an investor like that to look at private equity as something that that has gone up substantially and has also had stable returns. But I think to your point, Adam, on volatility laundering, I think the, the strong performance of private equity is potentially laundering volatility. And by that, I mean that the underlying assets of private equity are equities and equities typically with more leverage than public market equities. And as interest rates go up and down and change the valuation of all assets, private equity is not immune from this. It may be immune from this for a month because marks are slow. But just the fact that you're not marking it to market continuously doesn't mean that you shouldn't see the same volatility. So I think some of the diversification benefits of some alternatives like private equity are overstated right now and maybe misleading investors in that they think they're getting diversification, but actually the value of the assets in the portfolio is being eroded by higher interest rates and if properly reflecting the sell-off in public equities would actually be worsening the return profile of the portfolio. So I think in composing a portfolio, you want to think, are the alternatives I've got genuinely alternative in that the underlying assets are not correlated with what's going on in markets? Or are you really masking what's going on in markets with illiquidity and slow mark-to-market policies? All right. So then zooming out a little bit more, your team in general has been in place for over a decade and you two have worked together all that time. So can you talk a little bit about just your overall investment process, the team dynamics, how the team has grown and evolved over all those years? So yes, we we have been to, together in a marriage of convenience for, for more than 10 years. And I think, you know, when one thinks about a multi-strategy approach, there are essentially two ways of, of achieving that. One is to be a platform and hire individual managers with individual contracts and pass-throughs to address single narrow market opportunities. And when those opportunities no longer flourish, simply to change the manager and, and find new places to invest. Our approach has been a slightly different one. It's about allowing our team to move across those opportunities to develop skills that are applicable in different places at different times. And that for us has made a much more pleasant operating environment and allowed young people that we hire out of university to develop with us and to acquire skills and to deploy those skills in different places when the opportunities call for them. And I think this idea of learning and developing new skills is not just about the the team that operates the, the strategies that we have. It's about the strategies themselves. The whole idea of multi-strategy is that the investment process should be adaptive, that we don't find one thing to do and do it forever. 
we take advantage of different opportunities as they come up. So we talked about SPACs earlier. I think SPACs will have been largely discarded as a bad dream of the COVID era, but it was something that created a lot of opportunities at a point in time. And the the ability of their team to adapt for this, I think really characterizes multi-strategy. So think about it as being an adaptive learning process, both at the level of the people within the team, but also the strategies themselves. And that gives the ability to deal with a wider range of different market environments in the future. All right, then, Steve, as part of this, I've got to ask, I'm thinking back to when I first met you, it was early March 2020. I think it was the first week of March. You came in to present to a group of us here in the office. You were skeptical about shaking hands. You were talking about uh, hospital bed counts and respirator counts in Italy, things we just hadn't heard about yet. And go figure, you had uh, quite an edge in the situation that was unfolding that we weren't really aware of much in the U.S. in early March of 2020. So what is your research process? How do you keep an edge? And, and how are you so far ahead of the curve at that point in March? Well, I'm a natural hypochondriac, so it was easy to stay ahead in that particular. But more seriously, the approach for the team is really divided in two ways. I lead the team that think about the top-down environment in which we operate, where the risks are. We look forward to catalysts that might drive shocks to the system, opportunities. It might be a Brexit vote. It might be a U.S. general election that can drive a break or a change in the operating environment, the monetary environment, the fiscal environment. So we we look at that as a top-down uh, view of the world. But more importantly, is a bottom-up research. It's about finding opportunities in the micro and thinking about those opportunities driving a demand for capital from the top, from David and I. So each of the portfolio managers are constantly looking for new ways of deploying capital. We give them discretion to do that within a framework And it's that combination of top-down and bottom-up demand and supply of capital that's key in balancing the opportunities across multiple different sources of return. As Steve said, it's all about supply and demand. And what we're trying to think of is that if something changes in the market, is it possible for us to step in and be rewarded in terms of the risk return trade-off for doing this? So I think a, a mildly contrarian approach to taking bottom-up risk complements very well a top-down approach where you think about the unexpected, think about the unknown unknowns like COVID. And this is what characterizes our process, having this blend of the top-down and the bottom-up and bringing them together. Okay, we'll wrap up there. Thanks to Steve and David for joining. Great to have those unique independent thoughts from the Diversified Alternatives team. And thanks to our listeners for joining. If you haven't already, you can check out more Global Perspectives on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, check out the Insights section of the Janice Henderson website for more of our views. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Basis point or BP equals 1 one hundredth of a percentage point. 1 BP equals 0.01%, 100 BPS equals 1%. Beta measures the volatility of a security or portfolio relative to an index. Less than 1 means lower volatility than the index, more than 1 means greater volatility. A call option is a derivatives contract giving the owner the right, but not the obligation, to buy a specified amount of an underlying security at a specified price within a specified time. Consumer Price Index, CPI, is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the U.S. consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics.
Correlation measures the degree to which two variables move in relation to each other. A value of 1.0 implies movement in parallel, negative 1.0 implies movement in opposite directions, and 0 implies no relationship. Coupon, a regular interest payment that is paid on a bond. It is described as a percentage of the face value of an investment. For example, if a bond has a face value of £100 and a 5% annual coupon, the bond will pay £5 a year in interest. Covariance measures the directional relationship between the returns on two assets. A positive covariance means asset returns move together, while a negative covariance means they move inversely. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. Margin call. A margin call occurs when a margin account runs low on funds, usually because of a losing trade. Portfolio protection. Preservation of capital techniques include diversifying holdings over different asset classes and choosing assets that are non-correlating. Put options give holders of the option the right, but not the obligation, to sell a specified amount of an underlying security at a specified price within a specified time frame. Polarity. The idea that former support turns into resistance and former resistance turns into support. Risk premia. In alternatives investing, risk premia are investment strategies that aim to systematically isolate and harvest excess returns from exposure to specific risk factors or returns arising from behavioral or structural market anomalies. Option skew. The observation that not all options on the same underlying asset and expiration have the same implied volatility assigned to them in the market. SPAC. A special purpose acquisition company, SPAC, is formed to raise money through an initial public offering, IPO, to buy another company. Standard deviation measures historical volatility. Higher standard deviation implies greater volatility. Tail risk, the risk that the performance of an investment will move more than three standard deviations away from the mean suggested by a normal distribution curve. These are considered events that have a small probability of occurring, but which could have a significant effect on performance were they to arise. They occur at both ends of a normal distribution curve, with left-hand tail risk, the term used to describe negative tail risk factors, and right-hand tail risk, describing unlikely events that would have a positive impact on performance. The views presented are as of date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data source from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Fixed income securities are subject to interest rate, inflation, credit and default risk. The bond market is volatile. As interest rates rise, bond prices usually fall, and vice versa. High yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. Foreign securities, including sovereign debt, are subject to currency fluctuations, political and economic uncertainty and increased volatility and lower liquidity, all of which are magnified in emerging markets. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions, a. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, 
Registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited. Registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited. Registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited. Registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopthake, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B. The US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C. Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D. Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, Company Registration Number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E. Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan, limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, limited, ABN 47124279518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions and at resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Labs, and Knowledge Shared, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1122-46183. 11-15-23.